so far in Esther, we have seen the, the grim reality for Esther and many other girls who have been whisked away from their, their families and being treated, to put it mildly, all because the king, Xerxes, lost his head with his first wife because she said no. And he overreacted at that time too, didn't he? He sent a, an edict that all women, all wives and daughters should submit to their husbands and their fathers in every way. And now Esther is crowned. She is queen. And Mordecai overhears a secret plot to save the king. But now in this drama, as we see it unfold before us, we have a new character. And I want you to meet the bad guy, Haman. Each year in the Feast of Purim, the Jews have Esther read aloud. And whenever the reader mentions Haman, they stamp their feet and they cry out, may his name be blotted off or blotted out. For the Jew, Haman personifies everybody and anybody who has tried to exterminate them, to exterminate the people of Israel. So we have Haman the body, and every good story has a body. Isn't that right? Whether it be Batman and the Joker, or James Bond and notorious villains, whether it be Jaws or Goldfinger, or whether it be Harry Potter and Voldemort, every story has a body and a hero. And at the tail end of chapter 2, we have Mordecai uncovering this plot, and he brings it to Esther's attention and saves the king's life. And we would expect Mordecai to be elevated, but in verse 1, we see Haman elevated higher than all other nobles, waiting on the wings. Nowhere so far in the story, Haman's brought into stardom. He is now one of the main characters. As we try to piece this all together, Esther has become queen in the seventh year of Xerxes' reign. And now we read in verse 7 of chapter 3 that this is year 12. So there's five years in, in this. So Mordecai uncovers the plot sometime in those five years. And rather than Mordecai being elevated, we have this guy, Haman. Haman is a rewarded for, we're not really quite sure what, but in his position in the court, he has power to eventually make any decision. Haman is overlooked Sorry, Mordecai is overlooked. Haman is elevated. Haman essentially is the prime minister. He's above everybody else. He is really important. Not quite king, but he's really, really important. And where has he come from? Well, no one's really quite sure. Maybe with his character, as we look at it in the next few Sundays, that maybe Haman sweet-talked his way to the top or possibly bribed his way to the top. For it seems that his character is one that he has a big ego doesn't he? He's a big ego. He wants people to, to bow down to him. Haman is not content with being honored with position, but he also craves people's recognition. Haman was not content in being one of the most powerful people and important people in the kingdom, not content to work quietly, bringing about what he wants. He wants the admiration of the folk. He wants people to bow down. He wants people to respect him. Haman, I suspect, has a little bit of small man syndrome, you know? Someone who thinks they're more important than they really are, but looking for that craving, that attention, that importance. And he demands people to bow down. Now, in verse 2, to, to kneel or to pay honor here is not implying some sort of worship to Haman. Okay, it's a wee bit like whenever you're back in the day in school, if a teacher came into the classroom, you would stand up to show respect, or if you were to meet the queen, you might bow it's showing respect for the position, for the, showing respect for the person. And well, we read here that everybody bows down to Haman except one. 
Mordecai. In verses 2 through to 6, we have Mordecai's stand. Last week, we learned that Mordecai lost his standing in his family line, but this week, Mordecai is going to take a stand and not bow down. Why does he do this? Well, we might think that Mordecai's nose may be out of joint because he's maybe thinking, Haman's in my job, but it's, his nose is not out of joint for not being promoted. Yes, he might have expected a reward after saving the king's life, but every time Mordecai doesn't bow down, we read here that the guards are asking him over and over and over again, why not? And eventually, Mordecai gives a reason. It's not, well, I saved the king and I should be there. The reason Mordecai doesn't give honor is because he's a Jew. In verse 4, he's repeatedly asked, and Mordecai gives his reason, I'm a Jew. He admits he's a Jew, and there's nothing wrong with showing respect to people in position. We know that. Why does Mordecai not bow down? Surely this is a very strange thing for Mordecai to say. Because hasn't he told Esther to not tell anybody that she was a Jew? We have seen his questionable morality. We have been reminded these last couple of Sundays that the people of Israel were free from Babylon and they were told that they could go home. Some did, but many stayed. The Jews became so familiar with their, their pagan life that they just continued to stay where they were. They weren't going to go home, their proper home that God set apart for them in Jerusalem, to the promised land. But now, after all that, Mordecai has decided to say, I'm a Jew. Was it because he was a good Jew? Well, clearly not. Clearly, Mordecai was not a good Jew. So the fact that Mordecai is not home in Israel surely shows that he wasn't a good Jew. So why is being a Jew important to Mordecai now? Well, to understand that, we, not need, we need to understand not just Haman's personality, but Haman's character, or his, his, his line, his lineage, Haman the Agitite. See, we need to go back into Scripture. We need to, to look back to understand why Mordecai takes a stand now. In Exodus 17, so we're going back a thousand years after the Exodus from Egypt, the Israelites have come out and they have their first battle, one of the first battles in chapter 17 with the Amalekites. And the Amalekites attack Israel and the Amalekites are defeated. In Exodus 17, Moses is up on a mountain, he has to raise his hands and God delivers victory for him because Moses is praying over the people. The Amalekites attack them. But the Amalekites themselves, they, when they go back again, they are descendants from Esau. Remember well, last summer, two summers ago, Jacob and Esau, and Esau gave up his inheritance. Esau is going to be cursed by God because he gave up his birthright. And in Deuteronomy 25, God says, all these Amalekites must die. God curses them. They all must die because if not, they're always going to be against Israel. So this is what's going on in the background. But not only is it Israel's history with the Amalekites, with him and the Agitite, but in 1 Samuel 15, the Amalekites, God has already pronounced this curse, and God commands the king 
to annihilate, to wipe out all the Amalekites off the face of the earth, to, to kill all their sheep and their donkeys. Don't take any plunder, but kill them all. And the king receives the orders, and the king doesn't fulfill the orders that God gives them. The king decides to save the Amalekite king, Agag, where Haman comes from, Hagagite. So he's in this lineage of this king of Agag in 1 Samuel 15. And, well, this king Agag, he isn't killed by the king, but Samuel comes along and Samuel pieces, strikes him into different pieces and sends him away. So Samuel kills this Amalekite king. So this king in 1 Samuel 15 disobeyed God. This king in 1 Samuel 15 is also rejected by God. That king is King Saul. And I hope the calls are starting to turn. Who was a Mordecai a descendant of? Saul. So the reason Mordecai doesn't bow down isn't because he's a great Jew. It's because this is personal. This is personal. Mordecai is able to forget the fact that he's a Jew up until the point it becomes personal. That is why he doesn't bow down to Haman, because of this hostility, this historical hostility between their families. Yes, it might be for the, the greater Israel cause, but the fact is that Mordecai lost his standing, lost maybe the crown, because of Saul's disobedience to this king Agag. And Haman, he knows now that Mordecai is a Jew, and he has this hatred for them because he knows what the Jews wanted to do to kill them off the face of the earth. So Haman, how is he going to respond? Well, he overreacts just like the king, doesn't he? In verses 7 to 11, we have the plot. Every drama has a plot line, doesn't it? And this is the main plot line for the next number of chapters. It is Haman's anger and overreaction to not being bowed down to. He's enraged, he's very angry, all because he's got a tender ego. He's feeding off this praise for others. And Haman is not just content with killing Mordecai, but he plots to kill all the Jewish people. A final solution to surely be the Amalekite savior in many ways. One man offends him, and he's determined to kill the entire people. So what is Haman's plan? Okay, so verses 6 and 7, we... we pick up a couple of things. He, wants, he has superstition and he has bribery as part of his plan. In verse 7, we're told uh, by the writer here that they cast pur. Okay, so that's where the Jewish festival purine comes from, which we'll encounter in a few weeks' time. And pure or like dice. So, they, so uh, Haman, he gets these clay dice and he rules them. And just like our dice today, they would have months and dates on them but like ours and whenever he rolls the dice in the first month of king of king xerxes reign it lands on the 12th month so there's 11 months for this drama to unfold before us now dice can be used in the context of faith and lots can be drawn but here haman is using them as merely superstition to get the perfect date where the gods will be smiling down on him but isn't it interesting, as he rolls the dice, and the first month is 11 months later before anything's going to have to be done. Yes, Haman might be rubbing his hands thinking all the things that he can do in the meantime. 
I'm looking forward to that day. But let it be a reminder to us that we are never victims of chance or luck, that even God can use his enemies to serve his purposes. So Haman chooses the day and goes before the king, and he tries to bribe the king, doesn't he? He offers the king a huge bribe, 10,000 talents of silver. That is roughly two-thirds of the annual income for the treasury. So Haman must have been an incredibly wealthy man, or he hoped to get some of that back whenever he plundered the Jews. Either way, Xerxes is really actually concerned about the money, but he seems happy enough for it all to go ahead. Maybe knowing he'll get some of the money anyway. Content, no contest to letting these people die to get some more wealth. It's in the king's reaction that we see an utterly passive king. Haman's speech uh, to the king is one that's twisted. It's not quite all right. Some of our young people were doing this in Bible class earlier that Haman doesn't even tell them who these people are that these people are disobeying all of the laws. In fact, not just some of the people, but all of the people are disobeying all of the laws. They have their own laws. They do their own thing. And Xerxes doesn't even ask, well, who these people are. Without giving too many questions, without asking for any more advice, the king simply takes off his ring and flicks it over to Haman. Do what you want. Sounds like a good plan to me. And Haman has this seal the king sealed the seal, the edict. And as we have in verses 12 to 15, the plot announced. And very literally here, the devil is in the detail, isn't it? Verse 12, that the, uh, there's going to be annihilation. No Jews to remain. All the young and the old, the women and little children. And the words are, are very similar, what they're given there in Esther 3 to what Saul was commanded to do by God to kill the Amalekites. So there's a bit of a mirror image there, except that Saul wasn't allowed to take any plunder. But there's an interesting parallel there if you want to read that later in 1 Samuel 15. But it shows, surely in verse 12, how absolutely comprehensive this edict is. Not even just happy with a man, but every single person. The edict, the law is written, Amazingly, in many ways, very quickly, in every language, in every province, in all the, the cities and nations around the kingdom. And all Haman wants to do is to fulfill what his ancestors failed to do and exterminate the Jews. But Haman's edict, as it goes out, we see two responses to the edict as it goes out in verse 15. We see Susa bewildered, and we see the king doing what he does best, having another party or another drink. In verse 15, it says that Susa is bewildered. It seems that when the people get this edict, it's not really quite matching up to what they think about the Jews. It throws the city into confusion and maybe other places around the kingdom, showing that not everybody in the empire felt the way Haman felt, or as they think the king feels. And the king, well, he has another party. We've had one in Esther 1, this huge, humongous party. In Esther 2, the queen is crowned and there's a party. And now there's a booze-up between the king and Haman, celebrating genocide. So as we get into the thick of the plot in the story of Esther, in chapter 3, you have revealed to us this plot line that will go out in the next number of chapters. But what on earth 
is God trying to teach us in this chapter? What can we learn from this chapter? Let me highlight three things for us. Firstly, sin has consequences. This obviously doesn't look good for God's people, does it? But it all goes back to Saul. He was told to kill the Amalekites. If not, they were to be a constant thorn in the sides of God's people. And Saul disobeys. If Saul had listened to God and acted in faith, none of this would have happened. See, surely the question is, as we read Esther, if we're the people reading this for the first time, if we were living it, could God's people expect God to remain faithful to his promises? Could they expect God's covenant promise to still be in effect, even though they've disobeyed him time and time and time again? Will God save his people yet again? God wanted the Amalekites blotted off the face of the earth, yet they're still here, all stemming from sin. Sin complicates and distorts situations. Sin leaves a complex, tangled web of difficulty for us. Sin has consequences. Can't we use a lie to cover a lie that we've done before and suddenly we're tangled and can't remember what we said to who? So, for example, if our young people and maybe your older folk can remember if you've been out somewhere and you know your parents wouldn't be quite happy with that, you would string them a story or spiel a line to them to, to lie exactly where you're at. And, well, suddenly that story has to become a reality and you have to, to lie again and over and over again. But then when it all comes to the surface, not only have you been lying and dishonoring your parents, but there will be a distinct lack of trust, won't there? Sin has consequences. Like if you go to the dentist and the dentist says, right, brush your teeth, no more fizzy juice or drinks. You're going to wreck your teeth. And then you go back in six months' time, you've done, well, maybe brushed your teeth once or twice, but you haven't stopped all the sugar and there's going to be consequences to that. You haven't obeyed, you haven't done what you've been told. And we can leave ourselves in sin, in a tangled mess. A lack of trust that distorts us. And it'd be incredibly foolish for someone who has lied constantly to be trusted very quickly. Sin has its earthly consequences with our relationships in work, maybe, or family, and with the judicial system. But sin is much bigger than just involving us. This is a, a cosmic battle. There's a cosmic battle going along in Esther. You see, the extermination of the Jews, if this edict is fulfilled, that would mean an end to the messianic promise of the world. The reason God promised to protect his people was so that there would be one from within them who would bring salvation to all people. So this grudge between Haman and Mordecai, yes, it looks personal, but it is incredibly cosmic. It is overarching. It's a great conflict between God and Satan going right back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The story of Esther is part of Satan's attempt to prevent the birth of Jesus. Secondly, are we, as a question, are we Christians only when suits us? Are we Christians only when suits us? Mordecai's stand is personal. He ignored the fact he was Jewish before. He only decided he was a Jew when it got personal. 
whenever he realized who Haman was and who he was. Up to this point, Mordecai doesn't seem to have any real belief or concern for his faith. He explicitly commands Esther to hide it. Why did Mordecai think this is a good idea? He's blended so much into the culture that he's now going to be a Jew. After all his compromises, now he's going to be a Jew, living like everybody else, no intention of going back to God's family and God's people. What Mordecai does is, like he pulls out his Jewish card. Are we only Christian whenever it gets personal to us? Do you pull out, well, I'm a Christian card whenever it's convenient for you? Whenever you're at work and you're going out and you don't really quite want to do it, well, then you pull out the Christian card, but Monday to Friday afternoon, you're just like them in every way. But only when it suits you do you pull it out. D.L. David Leach mentioned a few weeks ago, and I think it's staring us in the face again about being culturally Protestant or culturally Christians like Mordecai. When it gets political or personal, then we'll pull out the Christian or I'm a Protestant Christian card. But only when it gets personal or political. The rest of our lives, we just leave Jesus behind. We're not concerned too much about him. Are we Christian only when suits us or all of the time? Finally, there is hope. Believe it or not, there is hope in Esther chapter 3. The day of annihilation that is to come will certainly be a bleak, bleak day. Unlike other moments in history, the Jews know this day will come. In verse 15, they've plotted to wipe out this entire ethnic group. From a human point of view, it really is bleak. But in verse 12, the day this edict goes out just so happens to be the 13th day of the first month. And that is the eve of the Passover. The eve of the Passover, which reminds us surely that there's that death sentence that looms over God's people. The Israelites had put blood upon the door to save themselves. There is hope. Esther preaches a gospel hope to us, hope for all sinners. God's people before the Passover, God's people in Esther's time, God's people today, have found themselves with this death sentence that looms over our heads, an edict that we cannot overturn. God alone can save his people. Only a proper king can overturn this edict. Only a proper king, Jesus, can overturn this. Because God uses Christ to purchase our death, even when the outcome looks bleak. Even though it looks like death should be ours because of our sin. Even when it looks like we should be wiped off the face of the earth, there is hope. Because God is sovereign. We are reminded in this eve of the Passover, as they prepare for their festival, that there is still hope. It looked like a hopeless situation in Egypt, but yet God rescued his people, and there is hope for us. Even though we have this looming death sentence of sin over our heads, where we should be annihilated, wiped off the face of the earth, God is sovereign and gives us Christ. Who can stop the Lord Almighty from providing us with a saviour? No one. We're going to stand and sing together. The praise team are going to lead us in a song that reminds us that even though we are dead in sin, that we should be annihilated, there is hope in Jesus Christ. Let's stand.